Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, where we climb the hills, tackle the bends and endure the potholes of issues to do with motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories with David Campbell, including Audi is introducing its traffic signal information system and why was at the end of the line for two on-demand bus trials in Sydney. We hear from a professor of economics from the UK on how we might pay for public transport. We road test a Ford Mustang. We have two motoring minutes, one on the Maserati Levante, another the Nissan Pathfinder, and some quirky news with Brian Smith. You'll find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, or our Facebook site is Overdrive City. So let's start the program. Let's have the news. Two on-demand bus trials have ended in Sydney amid warnings from the pricing regulator that the Uber-style services need to be carefully designed to ensure that they do not become expensive replacements for existing public transport. After starting about 18 months ago, a trial at Manly operated by Transdev and another run by Hills Bus at Carlingford in the city's northwest have ceased. Late last year, trials at Punchbowl and Wetherill Park in Sydney's west also ended. However, four on-demand pilots will remain in operation. The trials are subsidised by the New South Wales government to the tune of $20 million. As part of a review of public transport fares, the state's pricing regulator is looking at where on-demand services should receive taxpayer funding and the appropriate pricing for them. The Independent Pricing and Regulatory Tribunal has warned that on-demand services need to be carefully designed to ensure that high-cost, low-patronage fixed-route transport services are not only simply replaced by even higher-cost on-demand services. The Hyundai Nexo fuel cell vehicle has been named as a game-changer at the British Auto Car Awards in recognition of its zero-emissions hydrogen fuel cell technology. A panel of industry experts chose Nexo for defying conventions to bring unexpected benefits for buyers. The Hyundai Nexo does not only produce zero emissions but also cleans the air of particles. Nexo has an advanced air purification system which filters 99.9% of very fine dust. The car has also been awarded the Bio-Environmental Seal for its sustainable interior using biofibers throughout the vehicle. The Auto Car Game Changer Awards are handed to cars that bring new higher standards or for defying conventions to bring unexpected benefits for car buyers. The Nexo is already on sale in Europe with an Australian launch slated for late 2019. We have heard of unmarked police cars but now there are unmarked police trucks. In the UK, Highways England has revealed that its fleet of three plain-clothes trucks that patrol the country's motorway and major truck road network have recorded over 3,500 moving traffic offences in the first year of operations. 
The three unmarked supercabs have been fitted with wide-angle cameras to capture unsafe driving behaviour. The trucks have been used by 29 police forces over the past year. During the first year of operations, the most common offences captured by the supercabs included not wearing a seatbelt, using a mobile phone and not in proper control of a vehicle. Following a series of successful deployments across the USA, Audi is now introducing its Traffic Signal Information, or TSI, service to the European market, with initial systems installed in Germany, with further cities to follow from 2020. Audi customers in the USA have been using the TSI service since late 2016, making it the first automaker worldwide to offer network connections between its production models and traffic signals. The TSI system provides a time to green function which offers a countdown that shows the seconds to the traffic signal's next green phase. The service is available at more than 5,000 intersections across the United States. Audi has also developed another system which shows the driver the ideal speed for reaching the next traffic signal on green. Audi is aiming to install both systems in further cities across the United States and Europe, as well as in Canada and parts of China in the coming years. Overdrive's David Brown wonders if you create a better traffic flow for one group of people, does that mean that pedestrians or people from side streets will get less opportunities? Tesla was once the darling of Wall Street, but not anymore. The automaker's stock has plunged nearly 40% since the start of 2019, erasing most of the gains it made over the past several years. This week, Tesla's shares fell below the $200 mark for the first time since 2016. The outlook isn't nearly as bright for a company that once had faster sales growth than any other auto company in the industry's history. Tesla recently posted its biggest drop in sales ever. The company has been forced to close stores and raise prices as it struggles to return to profitability. To top it off, Tesla is expected to burn through a huge amount of cash in the coming year and it prepares for an international expansion that poses challenges of its own, along with the creation of a vehicle that could be its most important yet, the lower cost Model Y SUV, all while preparing for looming debt payments. Nissan has unveiled new driver assistance technology, combining navigated highway driving with hands-off single-lane driving capabilities. The technology will debut on the Japanese market Nissan Skyline in mid-2019. Designed for ramp-to-ramp -ramp highway driving, the new system engages with the vehicle's navigation system to help manoeuvre the car according to a predefined route on designated roadways. The system also enables hands-off driving while cruising in a single lane. At this stage, the technology is only available in Japan. And that has been the news. The Threadrow Conference occurs every two years. It's an international forum on passenger transport competition and ownership issues. The first one in 1989 was in Threadbow in New South Wales in Australia, hence the name, but since then it has been held in locations around the world. It has some very rigorous papers reporting on recent research and experience, but ultimately it pushes towards real practical solutions. The next conference will be held in Singapore in August this year, 2019. 
the chairperson of one of the workshops titled Beyond the Fair Box, Sustainable Funding of Public Transport by Better Understanding Service Values, is Professor Roger Vickerman. He's the Emeritus Professor of European Economics at the University of Kent, and we're honoured to have him on the line now. Professor, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. We in Australia have some people in significant positions who live by the mantra that private enterprise that is driven by financial profit motive, is all you need to ensure the best services. Is financial reward to the service provider the whole point? No, I don't think it is. And I think we've seen very clearly over the years in many different countries that simply handing over the provision of important public services, which is what local public transport is, simply to private provider uh, with the profit motive doesn't actually work And it doesn't work particularly for those who are more disadvantaged in society, who are the ones who typically need to rely on public services. And of course, one of the problems that comes with privatization has been that in order to be able to privatize a range of services, you have to break them up into, as it were, bite-sized chunks to enable the private sector to get a hold. And whether this is about uh, breaking up the monopoly providers Um, of local bus services, uh, or or whether it's about separately privatizing a whole range of different services, means that you don't get that joined-up thinking that we had typically in public service areas thought of as being important, that there is this interrelationship between services, that breaking them up doesn't necessarily uh, provide a coherent and integrated solution. And that has been I mean, a problem, I mean, certainly if you look, for example, at those countries which followed this privatization mantra, you know, going back to Margaret Thatcher in the UK, for example, seeing that the private sector could provide things more efficiently, there was always then the problem that, 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 that the relationships between private sector providers was going to be one that was, if you like, could be fought out by lawyers rather than by markets, which was a strange way of doing this. And you can see this, for example, in the, uh, in the way that the railways were, were broken up, that, that it's about then deciding whose legal responsibility it is to do something rather than just getting on and fixing it. That means that we're planning net what should be networks in terms of tiny little bits that don't necessarily all fit together. Professor Vickerman then told of some of the more specific examples of the broader interaction of services and transport and how a fix in one may create problems in another. It's in rural areas where we've seen most rural areas now virtually stripped of a regular, efficient public transport service to enable people without access to cars to get to services at the same time as we've seen a removal of that backbone of of public services from other areas. Closure of, of rural post offices closure of local bank um, uh, uh, local banks so that people actually need to get into a town and then find that they don't have access to public transport to enable them to get there and back easily even though we might have a, a, a system that subsidizes public transport for example for elderly people uh, through free bus passes not much point having a free bus pass if there isn't a bus to use it on I remember reading a a study some years ago now, which showed that the biggest users of taxis in the pre-Uber age 
of taxes in Los Angeles was of um, the poorest in society, mainly in order to enable them to access um, unemployment benefit offices, because these were not located in high rental downtown areas that were easily accessible by public transport. They were in the low rental out of the way areas, which people couldn't access by public transport. One strategy for raising funds other than through the fare box is based on land value. If businesses benefit from an improved transport network, then should they contribute to its construction? In Australia, we call that value capture. It can work in some situations. We've seen an example with the development of the Crossrail project within Greater London, which is not going terribly well at the, uh, at the end game. But we saw there the fact that they were using an additional charge on business rates for those areas that would benefit from this in order to be able to, to fund the scheme and indeed identify certain locations where there was a demand for a station on the line which the overall project did not think was viable to enable the private sector to do the development. You, you make the basic provision for a station within the system but the actual development of the infrastructure of the station itself is then funded by a local developer on the basis of capturing the value that comes from developing the land ab above the station, as it were. Is that a case of getting money to build it in the first place or to operate it? Because if you go back to the late 1800s in England and the development of the railway lines, there was a mass boom based on land speculation. Yeah but then a lot of them went broke in the operational costs over a period of time. Are we talking about ongoing funding or just getting over the first building hurdle? I think the first bit is actually making, making that, that initial provision. Moving on from there to an ongoing support is, a, is, of course, a much more difficult stage to get through. But you are indeed right that most of those early speculators in the railways went bankrupt, which is probably true of most private transport investments. It's a good idea to enthuse the private sector to build things which then can't be taken away. And if they go bankrupt as a result of that, that seems to be hard luck. And you can certainly see examples of that in terms of the private building of highways across Europe, uh, where private sector uh, developers have essentially gone bankrupt as a result of having developed it uh, and the state has had to, to, to step in. So that, I mean, you know, it may be a good social service to encourage people to invest in, uh, in private infrastructure with a view that they can then be taken over as a free good by the public sector. But I'm not sure that that would go down very well as a policy manifesto. Professor, it's lovely to have your time. I've taken much of it and I do appreciate that. Thank you very much for uh, your wisdom and your experience. Thank you, David. Nice to talk to you. And that was Roger Vickerman, who is the Emeritus Professor of European Economics at the University of Kent. We called him in the UK. This is Overdrive across Australia. Well, the term SUV might give you more of a family feel than a sports car. Maserati is just one manufacturer that likes to think their SUVs are both practical and sporty. Rob Fraser has been driving the Levante S Grand Sport. Here, the Maserati is amongst the best in the segment. It certainly isn't the fastest in the 0-100km an hour times. That mantle is claimed by others. But it displays a level of sophisticated ride and handling that belies its bulk. 
Many vehicles in this segment will perform, but are soulless. The Maserati is a grand tourer in the traditional sense. It will take four in comfort, five at a pinch, accommodate all their luggage, and allow you to travel long distances without fuss. At around $190,000 for the Levante S Grand Sport, plus the usual on-road costs, it's certainly not cheap. Yet when you buy a Maserati, you are buying an experience that engages all the senses. You're listening to Overdrive. The Ford Mustang. I went to a local monthly car show that raises money for the Bear Cottage and Cure Brain Cancer Charities. The event is called Machines and Macchiatos. People bring along their vehicles, mainly older cars, but occasionally you see some newer models. What I can guarantee is that there will always be some old Mustangs. We had the latest model which has that glorious style that pays homage to their first model that filled the dreams of so many people. Our Black Beast had a throbbing 5 litre V8, powerful engine 339 kilowatts, 556 newton metres. Now that's from a non-turbo petrol engine, albeit a big one, but that's still pretty good. And of course, a great sound. Did I play that before? Twice won't hurt. Inside looks modern. Most of the levers and switches are reachable. There is a lot of controls on the steering wheel. The windscreen washers cover the screen comprehensively. And there's mood lighting, including the door handles and illumination of the cup holders. You can choose driving modes such as comfort, normal, sport, race and drag. But you can also set the steering options separately, normal, sport and race. And the dashboard display, the cluster, in front of the driver has three options. Normal is a standard two-dial arrangement. The sport mode has an asymmetric layout with a round speedo dial on the right and the taco bar graph shaped like a hockey stick, ending up across the top of the cluster. But race mode aims for simplicity, just a bar graph for the revs across the top and big digital numbers for your speed and the gear you are in from the 10 speed automatic. Yes, 10. There's something technically wonderful about going down the highway and seeing that you are in 10th gear. The Mustang was crash tested in 2017 and only has a 3 star rating which is dragged down in part by things like no seatbelt reminders for the back seat passengers. It is rated at 12.7 litres per 100 kilometre fuel consumption. It drives with a purposeful aggression and steers well, with a light feel in comfort mode and a heavier, sharper feel in race mode. And it's got a great sound, which I think I mentioned. Of course, you are always glad to be seen in it. At the car show, I spoke to Scott, who had brought along his 1965 Mustang Coupe. His dials were all analogue. I asked him if he always wanted one. He did, but he needed more than his own passion in order to buy it. You have a Mustang as well. What model's that? I do. I have a 65 Fastback. That's lovely, isn't it? It is. It is. It's a. It was a uh, a want for a long time, 
it was a convince <laughs> that, that I should get one. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, all I had to do was claim midlife crisis and no, de- no depreciation of value in the long term. <laughs> Only one of those is true, maybe. <laughs> Did you fall in love with them when you were a young lad? Yeah, always had the soft spot. Um, and I always liked the idea of a left-hand drive in, in Australia oh. just for the hell of it. Um, yeah, it's nice. It's nice. People would notice the car for its shape, but also for the fact that it's left-hand drive. They do. It's con- constant questions about whether um, do you find it difficult, you know, what what are the challenges, um, all that sort of thing. But, yeah, it's good. You just have to concentrate a bit more. He noticed that I had the stability control turned off on my machine. I said that I had just picked it up and that must have been a reflection of the previous driver. Without prompting from me, he touched on an issue we covered a few weeks ago on overdrive. Does this car compel you to do certain things before... One thing I have a drama with with modern vehicles is they seem to tell me what to do all the time. that that bothers me it's like you know i can i can get that at home i don't need to get in a vehicle and have someone do that as well i got up this morning went to the car backed it out of the driveway and it's a lovely car to have in the driveway when you get out in the morning and look at it you feel good but i then got out of the car while it was still running to shut the gates and early in the morning it tooted at me which i didn't want the neighbours to be disturbed or anything. It was saying was it you were walking. Proximity? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my wife does that as well and you sort of go, yeah, I get it, I understand it but it still, I'm still being told what to do by a bloody machine. <laughs> so the four-cylinder turbo Mustang is $50,000, the V8 GT is 62300 and the bullet version is nearly $75,000. To each, you have to add on-road costs. A great bang for your buck in looks and performance. The Ford Mustang. I loved it when I was young, and I'm pretty impressed with it now. You're listening to Overdrive. The Nissan Pathfinder has been a popular SUV for families in Australia for years, but sales have traditionally been behind rivals like the Toyota Kluger. Rob Fraser, however, says the Nissan is worth a look. Nissan Pathfinder is designed for the urban family with a 3.5-litre V6 petrol engine that is more than adequate, but it is a little thirsty though, especially compared to the more frugal diesel and hybrid vehicles available. What it does have though is an abundance of comfort and safety features and little luxuries like air-conditioned front seats leather everywhere, LED lighting and a premium audio visual system. Combine this with a large and practical internal layout that allows for reasonable room for those in the rear and fold flat seats for a cavernous cargo area. To keep all seven occupants safe there is a full suite of safety features and driver assist technology that is class leading and a clever all-wheel drive system. The Pathfinder Ti is pretty good value and for some reason is underappreciated by buyers. Definitely worth a drive though. You're listening to Overdrive. Okay, we get to the last part of the program, and joining me on the line is Brian Smith. Go, Brian. G'day, David. You've been travelling about a bit, I think. 
I have. I've been in the south of our fine country. Uh, very good. Now, um, since stepping down from the Olympic Games spotlight in 2017, Usain Bolt, the sprinter, is still very, very fast, and he's turned to investing. And one of his first endeavours in the United States is electric mobility. He unveiled a prototype of an electric minicar at a tech show in Paris and started accepting reservations. It's going to be called the Bolt Nano, or B-Nano for short. Now, Brian, uh, Usain Bolt is a sprinter, so he accelerates remarkably fast, but he's got no range. Is that appropriate? (laughs) I was going to suggest that as well, David, that uh, he was an interesting choice, I suspect, based on his name, Bolt, Lightning Bolt, uh, sort of relationship with electricity. But um, I would have thought you'd be wanting like a long distance runner, like to to talk about range, because uh, you may be able to go fast over a short distance, but... Uh, yeah, he's not known for his, his range. And maybe if you're an EV marketer, electric vehicle marketer, you'd be maybe wanting to tout that rather than speed. Interestingly, though, David, I see that the the uh, Nano has sort of tandem seating. So the driver sits in front and the passenger sits immediately behind. So it's a very narrow little car. In fact, four of them can fit in a, a standard parking spot. Now, that makes me think of um, the downhill uh, luge rather than <laughs> than sprinting so yeah maybe uh you know someone a skater or a uh or the oh i don't know the barbados uh luge team might be an appropriate thing to to market well of course that is a great sprinting thing isn't it to get it going as a, a great opportunity for the luge people to sort of get that fast start so maybe that's thing the only other thing i thought it might uh, bring back is a hood ornament Oh, yeah, okay. He does that pointing thing. The pointing thing, so he could be there on the front. Yeah. It's not a bad idea. David, it could be dynamic so that it moves around, perhaps. You know, you could have it sprinting while you're driving along. There's some good ideas. I think we should very quickly register these ideas. Hmm. What other athletes could um, associate themselves with other types of vehicles? Perhaps he could also have spikes on the tyres as well, like spikes on his shoes. Oh, yeah, winter tyres. Other sports people. Even other sprinters, David. I think uh, the Ben Johnson <laughs> might be the, the electric vehicle that's secretly got like a V8 petrol engine in it. So it turns up all sort of very muscly and, and uh, you know, bulgy. <laughs> promotes as an electric car, but possibly isn't. You know, on the juice. Actually, on the juice. <laughs> would, would probably work for electric vehicle promotion too, wouldn't it? Well, that'd be the first name of the car, wouldn't it? The Juice. Juice. Ah, <laughs> oh, you wouldn't want to get sort of um, associations with OJ Simpson. Oh, well, no. For example. No. Juice. That might be the one that uh, your partner is, is unlikely to get into. Brian, lovely to talk to you. We'll catch you up next week, eh? As always, David. Brian Smith, and we were talking stories that may amaze you about motoring and transport, but not necessarily in a technical sense. And this has been Overdrive. Thanks to David Campbell, Professor Roger Vickerman, Rob Fraser, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their wit and wisdom in producing this program. 
Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And our Facebook page is Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.